This is an advert. Here he comes, coming in. <laughs> you, you're just sitting there grinning at the camera. Yeah. Alex. Yeah. Did you know that The Economist is about far more than just economics and finance? Yes, I, I did know that. Have we started? Did you? Did, did you know that The Economist is the smart guide to the forces impacting your world? Have we started? <laughs> did you know that it helps readers prepare for what's going on in the world around them? And that The Economist sifts through the noise, focusing on the essential information that tells the real story. Did you know all these things? I, I knew all of these things and more. Why? Yes. How? How? Because I read The Economist. Okay. And also because you've been briefing me about them <laughs> every five minutes. And mm. you brought them all up in the first take of this that we did. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, but it's, it's science, technology, the arts environment, and even sport. Did you know that, though? I, I did. Yeah. Yes, oh, I okay. Did. You've been reading The Economist, haven't you? Yes. But for people watching, I mean, you don't know how to be in front of a camera, do you? Because you just held that <laughs> about a foot above where the screen is. For people watching, they'll see Alex uh, modelling a, a, a copy of the magazine very poorly there. Yeah. You wouldn't have thought he'd come from a television family, would you? No. But he has. Look at that. What have you been reading about in The Economist? Um, so they've done, uh, this is the July 6th edition, and they've done a series uh, of what-ifs kind of thought exercises around various things. One of which is what happens if Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram get so annoyed with European regulation that they just shut down their services in Europe. Mm. And that made me think about what the impact would be on football if that happened. So obviously clubs and their social media reach, um, that would affect their brand valuation, but also you know, the businesses who uh, create small bits of content and put them out on Facebook and monetize them right the way down to creators who are making good shirts and running community clubs who do a lot of stuff through Instagram. So the impacts on football would be massive if this were to happen. Mm. Yeah. What does this, what does the, the article's not about football though. What does uh, it actually no, say? It's got nothing to do with football at all. Um, and that's one of the great things about The Economist is it stimulates you to think outside of what they're talking about. And, and it's also, it's not about boring football. It's not about boring football. <laughs> it's the main good thing about <laughs> um, it. Basically, Although, it says, I mean, there are a lot of football articles in there. Uh, the European Union is clamping down on 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 Facebook and, and other tech giants because of monopolies, because of privacy issues and so on. Mm. So it's just kind of examining the the potential of that to actually have ramifications whereby Facebook think that it's you know, more trouble than it's worth to actually operate in that region. Is, is Twitter included in, in that list? Um, it's not currently. Oh, thank but, God I for mean, you. It would hey? be amazing if it were to. I, I think you'd be, what would you do with yourself if there was no Twitter? Um, I'd probably be a lot more constructive. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine the productivity. I can, yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, speaking of productivity, did you know that there's been excellent productivity at the offices of The Economist for over 170 <laughs> years? Did you know that? Those guys really are very productive and industrious, mm. I would say. And also The Economist, it's for the kind of person who never stops asking questions and wants to know why the world is the way that it is. I feel like I'm one of those people. Alex, I feel like sometimes you're one of those people. Often. Often. Often one of those people, yeah. yeah. Well, if you listening or, or viewing are one of those people, you can get your free print copy of The Economist by texting the word TIFO to 78070. That's TIFO to 78070. 
It's UK and Ireland only. Sorry, people who live elsewhere. Right, well, uh, enjoy the rest of the episode. I hope you do. And uh, do please text TIFO to 78070 for your free print copy. That's There's no obligation to do anything else. You just get a free print copy. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. Uh, yes, enjoy the rest of the episode. Thank you for listening and watching. Goodbye. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. My name is Joe Devine and today I'm joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi Joe. Hello. And Alex Stewart. Hello. 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 All well? Oh, yes. Marvellous. Yes. Lovely. Yes. Let's talk about Manchester United. This team is the topic of today's Sensible Transfers edition of the podcast. It will be slightly different uh, than usual because we're going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning talking about whether or not Manchester United need a director of football, or as one TIFO listener put it to me, not whether or not they need one, but why they do need one. I'll leave that up to you to explain to me why. But also, uh, some listeners very kindly submitted some questions about Manchester United for us, so we'll have a look through some of those as well and talk about some of the players, some of the players that have already arrived, other areas that maybe could use uh, reinforcements or a new starting berth, and also... Just what's the uh, what's the issue with that Sean man from Newcastle? What's his name? Sean Longstaff. There you go. There you go. Good job you're here, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, let us begin then by talking about uh, a director of football. Um, and do forgive us listeners who've listened to the podcast before. We have talked about this idea before, but just in mind of people who are new listeners or who want to, you know, want to get on the topic from the beginning. Alex, can you explain to me initially just what a director of football is briefly and why it is something that teams now use when they didn't 10, 20 years ago. So the basic idea of a director of football is somebody who sits above the variety of footballing operations that exist within a club. So that is first team structure, recruitment, training, analytics, youth academy, pathway from the youth academy into the first team via an under 23 or an under 21 team and basically sets the tone for all of that an overall strategy so football clubs will look at a way of playing that they'd like they'll look at manager managerial recruitment that fits that playing style players that are coming through how all of that works together the director of football and they do have other names sometimes um, but director of football is probably the easiest way to put it. What, um, what are the other names? Uh, so sporting director is yeah. another one. Um, and sometimes there'll be things like a head of recruitment that mm. actually sort of sits across various areas. Cock of the walk. Uh, yes, cock of the walk In is definitely ways. one. Mm. Um And they basically pull it all together. Um, So the idea is that uh, in older periods, you know, sort of up until even really the the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, everywhere and in many instances in England still, the manager is the person who kind of does that and then the academy is sort of slightly off to one side and there's no necessarily holistic strategy that sits above a manager because obviously managers come and go and and the styles that they employ come and go um so clubs increasingly felt that this was a good position to have i think it probably came out of germany like a lot of these innovations did Mm -hmm. um you know they started to think about how can we ensure continuity of strategy even when managers come and go can so I, that's what they are. And can I say, is it fair to say that Manchester United is a good example uh, through which to talk about this? Purely because we, we've we seen over the recent seasons since Alex Ferguson retired and since there's been you know a few different managers running the club over the last five or six years, 
that not all transfer decisions are being made by the managers. There was Jose Mourinho talked about this with the press a little bit when he was in the job, a lot more after he left the job. There was discussion that Alexis Sanchez, for example, who now appears to be a bit of a problem, um, certainly in terms of wages and form for Manchester United, was potentially brought in or certainly... Uh, engaged the attention of senior officials at the club in a way that he didn't engage the attention of Jose Mourinho, the manager. So if we can acknowledge that all of transfer activity is not dictated by the manager at a club like Manchester United, where the managerial turnover is higher than it might be elsewhere, then presumably that dictates that there must be a more senior role from that someone. And Manchester United fans, I think, will agree who isn't who, whose history and expertise isn't in the commercial side of the game and in, essentially in, in banking. Yeah, so I think there are three very strong arguments why Manchester United particularly would benefit from this. The first is that Edward Wood has shown that he is commercially very astute, but not in terms of football. Uh, I think the second point is that there has been not only a high turnover of managers, but since Ferguson, there have been shifts in those manager styles. So they've gone for different people that don't necessarily complement what came before or what complemented the squad. And I think the last point is that when you have a manager like Ferguson, who is in post for such an awfully long time, so much power and responsibility is devolved to that one individual that a club by default has a period of adjustment afterwards. And actually when Ferguson left would have been the ideal time to bring somebody in and say, right, you know, we've had... 20 plus years of this one kind of godfather figure who ran everything and did a brilliant job. Plus David Gill, who left at the same time, right? Absolutely right. And so there's a a, a clean sweep now, a new broom, whatever the expression is. Um, We will install somebody to, to do that who will... And actually, at that point in time, it would have been particularly useful to ease that transition and to kind of bridge the gap from this sort of behemoth figure who had done everything and run everything. Um, so, yeah, but they didn't do it. I think United is, is kind of the perfect example. It's the perfect argument as to why you need the position. Because if you think about the Mourinho era, it's not really an era, mini era at United, you have Ed Woodward, who um, looks after the, uh, the, the club's um, commercial imperatives and is very good at it. Um, so the Mourinho era, uh, if you want to even call it that, Mourinho, like, like all other managers, is, is governed by self-interest. So what he wants from a transfer, potentially, um, is designed to suit the next one, two or three seasons. What Ed Woodward wants from a transfer is someone who ticks other boxes, someone who um, can be a billboard in South America or Asia or America. And so what you really need is someone between that who, who is a, a kind of compromise between those two objectives. Um, so, for instance, I, I think a really good example is probably... Um, Towards the end of Mourinho's time in the club, we we heard leaked stories about emails he would send to uh, send to Edward Wood, you know, requesting uh, the club pursue certain players. Um, and obviously, the the kind of in Mourinho's mind, he's a manager who who wants ready made off the peg solutions. He wants players in the prime of their career. He has next to no interest whatsoever in developing a footballer from you know sort of an embryonic stage to a you know um, to a, to a, to a senior uh, part of his career. Um, so you need someone that looks after the interests of a club over 10-year spans rather than just season to season. So that, I mean, I, I think originally kind of the, the, the genesis of the sporting director position is to guard against wastage. It's to, as Alex said, it's to stop clubs, especially as the game became financially richer, from losing huge amounts of money and seeing sort of redundant investments occur as a result of the changing that occurs between managers. 
Um, and there is no better example of that than the Mourinho time, because obviously um, he is now gone and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is there, but they, they have this sort of vast amount of money that been invested in the first team squad, which is almost of no use whatsoever. So it's a, it's a very, very interesting case study, very pertinent. Mm. And it's, it's right also to think that a, a sporting director or a football director it does, set the sort of the, the, does set the tone and the overarching plan, but can be led by a manager's philosophy as well, because we've seen, or we think we've seen, if we look at the sorts of players that Manchester United have either brought in or are rumoured to be attempting to bring in this summer, that... Oli Gunnar Solskjaer appears to have some kind of um, some kind of autonomy in terms of who is being targeted. There seem to be young players, a lot of emphasis on pace, a lot of emphasis on being able to grow into a team together. That's clearly, oh, I mean, it might be coming from Edward Wood, but it seems that there's a philosophical approach there which is in line with what Oli Gunnar Solskjaer would talk about. So alongside a sporting de- director, for example, which is a role that we know Manchester United have explored and are exploring now, there are no uh, hard or firm decisions have been taken there. But can a manager work alongside a sporting director like that? Can they still pursue their philosophy so long as it isn't hugely different to what the club has been doing or, or, or is aiming to do over a longer period of time? They should do. Is it secondary? The manager's idea? Is, is well, what the manager wants secondary? I, I think it depends on, on what the relationship and the arrangement is there. And, and I think a sensible club would probably look to work out initially what their overarching football strategy is, which will include that slightly vulgar modern phrase, their brand of football. And therefore managerial recruitment ought to be aligned with that. So if you want to play Tony Pulis-esque football, you first of all decide that, then at the same time that you're assembling a squad that will work with that style of football, you hire Tony Pulis et al., If you want to work with younger managers, more progressive managers, managers who value certain other things, that should be a kind of beginning point decision that then informs your recruitment overall. Because I think increasingly managers are, they're sort of supra the playing staff, but they're still kind of part of that. You know, the expectation is that a manager will be around for at most probably three to four seasons. Um, the the majority of clubs are not in a position to have a manager who is extremely successful and then be able to hold on to them in the face of the advances of, of bigger clubs. So I think this is part of exactly as Seb was saying, you know, to avoid wastage, to avoid churn, part of what you need to do is work out how you want to play first and then in concert with a manager who is brought in for that style or for their ability to develop younger players, or because they have a particularly interesting coaching style, you also then look to build recruitment around that. And and that's why, for example, you might think about, so Nagelsmann at uh, moving to Red Bull, for example, which is a very structured club with a very clear top-down way of running things. So obviously Nagelsmann is a a very astute tactician. He's a very good man-manager. But his particular thing is working with developing younger players. Obviously that fits in stylistically with the way that Red Bull conduct their business, the way they have little offshoot clubs, whether it's Red Bull Salzburg or it's FC Liefering. And so it's not just the tactical approach that he brings. He'll be able to work with Ranić in an intelligent manner, but he also has a good track record of working with younger guys on a kind of production line of talent 
that will then work through the whole Red Bull system and then off out into the world at a considerable profit and mm-hmm. he'll be there to you know work with the next generation of those so it's it's not necessarily just playing style that that factors into these considerations let us talk about the types of people who have been involved in the discussion with regards to Manchester United's next or hypothetical footballing director because Many of them, with the exception of the chap at Norwich, whose name I now can't remember. Stuart Stuart Webber. Stuart Webber. Uh, Many of them were ex-pros, or were specifically Manchester United ex-pros. Rio Ferdinand was one of the the leading names. And I'm now remembering having read an update on this, but I can't remember whether it was he's the only name left in contention or he has been ruled out of contention. But either way, do you think it is sensible to... Because there is an argument to hiring someone who has worked the club in a footballing capacity before, who understands the supposed brand values of Manchester United, who understands the, you know, the thing that they're always talking about, the history and the, uh, the sort of, I don't know how real that is myself, but certainly I can imagine that someone who has been part of a Ferguson, a very successful Ferguson team, would absolutely buy into that, whether or not it was real. Right? Is, is there, is there a, a sensible, is that a sensible idea to, to go for someone who was an employee, or should they be looking for someone who is a, a professional in this regard, has been a footballing director elsewhere, knows exactly what they're doing and is experienced. I would say yes, the latter. I, there is absolutely no harm in that person being somebody who was a big deal at the club or came through the club or, you know, someone like Nicky Butt, who's actually done a good job with the Youth Academy. The Buttmeister. That makes sense, but I'm not rising to that. Um, the First and foremost, and this is one of the oddities with football, is that football is an extraordinarily wealthy business that if it were any other corporate structure in the world, you know, banking, entertainment, whatever it is, would be run by professionals, by people who had gone through MBAs or people who had people come up People with qualifications. Through, people with qualifications. Yeah. And, and there are qualifications for this sort of position. I mean, it's still fairly nascent and, you know, things are developing. Stuart Weber, I think his background was in analytics, I think he was um, actually his first job was scouting or something. Was he was head of youth at Wrexham, and I think he I think got that position when he was eighteen or nineteen. His career is very 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 interesting. It's a kind of um, it's it's really how it should look in terms of acquiring experience and qualifications on the side, and gradually moving up the ladder. Also working under people that are innovative uh, and have experience of their own. So he spent some time at uh, at Liverpool, I think. He was, he was at Huddersfield. He was responsible for bringing David Wagner to Huddersfield, Aaron Moy, obviously integral figures within their promotion. Alex, I just want to pick up on, on something Alex said. It's, just, it's the Rio Ferdinand thing, and this is, not a, 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 this is not a personal vendetta, even though it might sound like it. I think that Rio Ferdinand remains linked to the Manchester United position and that there is support for him, um, represents how little, not understanding, but how little respect there is for this role in football, in that... A director of football is, I think in its most simplest form, it is the head of the entire football department and everything that comprises. And the sole qualification for that is not done some television work and played for quite a long time and mm. also for England won the European Cup. When you there put is it like no that, overlap. do you not think that that is a job that requires perhaps even more experience than the managerial role? I think it's more important because I, in an ideal world, if, if a club are going to operate with a director of football model, I think what has to happen is ownership ownership appoint these figures these sort of whatever you want to call it a a almost um a footballing chief executive if you like and that person appoints the manager i think a really good example of it at the moment where this plays out in the following premier league season i don't know but villa so 
In comes the new ownership. Christian Perslow is appointed a couple of months later. Perslow appoints a uh, sporting director, Patark. Patark is uh, involved in the, um, with Perslow in the appointment of the manager. Then you have that alignment. Then you have people that want to work with each other rather than just, uh, here's our manager, he's in situ, here's our chief executive, let's bang someone in the middle and hope it works out, which is kind of, this may be doing them a gross disservice, but that is the impression that you get from the way Manchester United have approached this problem. Because I think as well, part of the issue is that, as I say, you know, the, the end of the Ferguson era would have been an absolutely, or in fact, six months before the end of the Ferguson era really would have been the sensible thing to do, to start with a clean slate. In pretty much any other regard, there is no such thing as a clean slate in football, because whatever happens, you're coming into a pre-existing squad. And so actually, a, a sporting director or a director of football, however you want to call them, it may be that part of their job initially is to transition from think about when uh palace appointed frank de burr right frank de burr in himself is a a good and interesting manager associated distinctly with the brand of football that was wrong for the playing squad that palace had at the time so a sporting director in that instance would have gone (laughs) our end point is that we want to have a manager like this and we want to play this way our starting point is this squad how over the period of two or three years do we transition to a point of being able to either change the uh well basically to change the playing squad to achieve the brand of football that we want or actually to reassess what that footballing style is and that's why you kind of want to look at these uh schismatic points in the history of clubs of which there aren't many i mean the only other you know, comparable one in the Premier League era is Wenger leaving Arsenal. But those are the times when you say, okay, this is what you want. And I, and I think, again, I agree with what you've said about Ferdinand. And again, it's nothing personal against him. I'm sure he's a very Seems smart like a lovely bloke. Yeah, but-, but at the same time, actually, the one of the points of doing this, of bringing in this kind of appointment, is to have a schism. It is to say, this is a fresh start. I'm, I have nothing against people with associations with clubs going back to fulfill that role if they are otherwise qualified and and sensible as appointments. But this to me seems to smack of that same kind of Man United thing of the Man United way, insofar as it exists, whatever that is, will kind of steamroller any pragmatic considerations out of the way. We'll just get a guy who really digs the club Mm. in and it'll all be fine and and to me that's exactly the wrong sort of move let's stress something i think that alex and i agree there is no harm in an ex-professional taking this job but the um prerequisite for that happening should be ex-professional gaining the qualifications to take the job because a lot of these guys they have all the wealth in the world they have all the financial security there is no reason why they cannot dedicate if they if they if they want to have a second act to their football career in a different kind of capacity there is no reason in the world why they cannot go out and acquire that experience, qualifications. There are now plenty of colleges and sort of um, ad hoc organizations that offer training of this kind of thing if you can't achieve it in the real world, if you can't achieve it, uh, obtain it in the real world. So that is, in fact, actually, it's very useful if someone with a background in the game then does transition into that way, just as long as the right steps are taken. I mean, one, of, one of the outstanding examples of this role is um, Michael Zork. Yeah let's yeah. say his name properly, um, who is a genuine Dortmund legend. I mean, he's played for Dortmund as a player more than any other player. But 
he didn't just go, that's my qualification for I doing fancy this job. I go at doing this. Absolutely right. That. You know, yeah. he, he went through because this is Germany and they do things intelligently there. You know, that process was there. So by the time he gets to that role, he's got experience of working with, with you know, other aspects of the club. He's done some training. He's done some, you know, professional qualifications, for however you want to put it. So he doesn't just kind of roll into it on the basis of what he's achieved as a player. And I think that's the key distinction. Okay, so so maybe not a, a clean slate as such, but a period of time where over that period of time, every part of the slate is clean at different times. And then you've got your schism in a way, haven't you? You know what I'm saying? Bring someone in long term in yeah. a way that the manager isn't going to, uh, if the manager chops and changes, it doesn't affect the cleaning of the slate over a period of time. In a sense, the slate is constantly being cleaned. It's football. Uh, speaking exactly. Of- no, but that is exactly right. Mm. And and you ha- what you have to try and do is interpose yourself at some point and work out as I'm cleaning the slate, what do I want it to look like after I've done that? Mm-hmm. And And United seem to be it's very difficult to detect any sort of sense other than we want to continue to be commercially successful. Well, what on that, that is. note, though, uh, talk to me about Sean Longstaff, because <laughs> I don't know, firstly, that that resembles a move which um, seems a, a commercial imperative for Manchester United to make, or that will sell many shirts, for example, nor do we seem to understand in this room, at least, uh, how he differs particularly from Scott McTominay, or is worth He's, the money that it would it would be rumoured um, to cost the club to purchase him. So it, can you explain to me, just shake your head if not, uh, and that's a good time to mention, actually, you can watch the podcast. You'd see Alex shaking his head now. Yeah. And if you do watch the pod- podcast regularly, you'll see that Seb looks very attractive today. And the reason for that is not because he is any more attractive than he was last time. I've lost a couple of pounds. There you, well, so the, maybe 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 we could say that you know we delayed the using of the new camera until yeah. I'd. I would say that that would describe you as perhaps looking healthier rather than more attractive because yeah. I've I've always thought you've got a, a lovely sheen. Well, that's very kind, Charles. It's really, a, it's really <laughs> lifted my morale on a Monday morning. Yes, yes. <laughs> We've got a new camera anyway, and so now Alex and Seb look great, and I look like an iPhone. Um, Sean Longstaff. Yeah. Do go on. Right. So first of all. Wow. There's the head shaking. There's the head shaking. Um, Longstaff is... Uh, I'm going to come back at you when he's scored 100 goals <laughs> sure. in one day. Great. Um, I'll be waiting. Mm. Um, effectively, he does pretty much everything that McTominay does, just not as well. Do you not want two of them in your team? No. No. Part of what his- does McTominay do? Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sir. We'll come, we will come back to that. Okay. But no, no, I mean, I'm not, 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 to, no, no, no. not to criticize That's any of these players. That's very reasonable. What yeah. sort of? Because I, I, I notice on the game of FIFA yes. that Scott McTominay is labelled as a central defensive midfielder. Now that is the extent of my understanding of yeah. Scott McTominay. But will you please explain to me? Beyond the realms of the game of FIFA. Which you, you discovered about six months ago and it kind of changed you, didn't I it? I really yeah. like it. I rediscovered it. I'd oh, say. did you? Okay. Yeah, I did okay. rediscover it, yeah. But do, do, do explain to me, because they don't seem to play him there very often in real life, not in the game of FIFA. Yes. Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by, and I don't know, in FIFA, is that, do they literally sit one row back from, I yeah, don't they play sit FIFA. Behind, in, in the starting formation, they sit behind the centre the center circle rather than right. ahead of it. Okay, so or, so or in it. Generally speaking, if 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 you had a um if you had two midfielders playing next to each other in the midfield, he would be the the 
lower of those two if you're looking at it like a, a FIFA pitch. Um, he's basically there to to break up attacks, to drop back towards the central defensive line and win aerial balls. He's six foot four. He's quite good in the air. Um, he's also pretty good at carrying the ball forwards on the break. So he can be used as a kind of transitional runner, press breaking runner. You know, he's he's by no means excellent at that, but because he has that physicality, he can, and a nice long stride, he can carry the ball forwards quite well and give some dynamism in transition. Um, he's... He's a fairly reasonable passer of the ball. He's not going to play like Hollywood passers that reach the wings, but he will keep things ticking over. He receives the ball quite a lot and kind of moves it on. And in that regard, Longstaff is like a more conservative option um, because they are they are very similar players in that regard. Um, Longstaff mm. intercepts per 90 a little bit higher than McTominay, but that's quite system-oriented um, in pretty much every other regard. McTominay does the same stuff but better and he's already there I feel like some of Longstaff's value is is kind of um is a little bit illusory or doesn't apply beyond Newcastle United I saw um I saw the, the his second Premier League appearance which which was at um Stamford Bridge against Chelsea and he's a very good player in a in a sense um he's more static than McTominay he's got a slightly wider frame um but a lot of kind of a lot of his rise has been instructed not just by some you know competent seven seven and a half out of ten performances, but also what he represents within that Newcastle team and what Newcastle are as a club at the moment, which is a you know almost a, a team without a flag really because of the Mike Ashley issue, which we've covered in other podcasts. Um, so I think kind of there's been this exaggeration of of his abilities. Um, he's a young hero. He's a little bit of a young hero. In a way, there are actually some very convenient parallels with McTominay because McTominay is, is seen as this kind of honest, no-frills player during this time of, of kind of almost uh, very dissatisfying excess at Old Trafford. And so he's a little bit of a throwback. He's a little bit of an anchor because of, he's, a, he's risen through the, the academy. That's, you know, um, doubly true. Um, Longstaff, I imagine, will have a very decent career in mid Premier League table land uh but some of the fees I mean I, I went into kind of when this question was posed I sort of approached it with an open mind as best I could and you thought right how is it that that you can justify um theoretically 50 million 50 million an incredible 5-0 pounds being spent on this player one he's British therefore um he ticks the sort of the homegrown player quota that's quite valuable okay but as a player as a set of attributes what uh what is he adding it's it's very very hard to understand it's kind of indicative of everything we've talked to up to this point which is um united reacting to not flavor flavors of the month but being kind of being seduced almost by a new cycle you have to do i mean i just assumed when i saw this rumor a few weeks back that this was led this was a an ollie gunner Solskjaer led thing he's a young player uh he hasn't I hadn't noticed a particular notoriety in in the news cycle beforehand. The way you're talking about it, they said you, you seem to think that he might fit the profile of someone who would attract the the commercial aspect of Manchester United as well, or someone that no. Ed Woodward might have noticed. I mean, I I, I think no, no, I, I don't. I think he's a sort of first of all, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer shouldn't be making transfer decisions. I mean, he needs to pick the team. He needs to work, as Alex says, in concert with someone higher up. And but what what experience does he have of spending that kind of money. I mean, there has to be some accountability there. It has to be 
His job is to coach the team, pick the players, run training, that kind of stuff. Absolutely fine. And ask for new players, maybe? Ask for new players, but yeah. be, be one voice in a room full of more educated voices. And we should stress at this point that we don't know that that isn't, that, that isn't what's happened. Of course, there's been a lot of rumours about, uh, about Sean Longstaff, but beyond that, there, there, has, been, there has been no attempt. No, no, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not flogging we Manchester that, United for overspending. But also that, we don't uh, know that that isn't what's happened, that, that, that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer hasn't said as one, room in a, in, as one voice in a room of voices, I would like to look at this player. The club have gone to look at the player and then that's where the rumours have Joe, come this, from. But this Joe, is, this, is, this is another, um, this is a more subtle form of failure because in any club which is successful, the division of labour is very, very clear. Whether you look at um, whether whether you're thinking of Manchester City, or Liverpool, or Tottenham, you know, or you know, uh, the the German clubs are the best example because there is habitually a little bit more clarity about their their operating procedure. But Man United, the the, the the sort of the vagueness, the nebulous way in which these decisions are being um, uh, are being made is really a symptom of the problem itself, in my opinion. I, I can also see, and uh, you know, the the last player of this ilk, and I think there are some parallels, um, not least that struck me when I watched Sean Longstaff's pretty bad performance against West Ham last season, um, is is Declan Rice, who again I feel is another of these kind of young midfielders of a certain sort of position, a certain kind of solidity, functional. Not, I mean, I think Declan Rice is a better player. Yeah, than I was going to say. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, and and to go back to sort of what we were saying about Solskjaer, you know, it, you can envisage a scenario in which what is said is, I need a defensive midfielder. I need someone who's big, who can win the ball, who can screen the back four, who's decent in the air. Ideally, I'd like them to be English, and because Longstaff started to attract attention towards the end of the season in some ways for the reasons that you said as well I agree that actually he became kind of emblematic of what Newcastle might be under a different ownership um you know developing young talent uh, yeah. the hero of Gallagate blah 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 that there was a sort of availability heuristic there that you know Longstaff was the coming man and therefore he was the one that was suggested to be looked at um yeah, potentially. I mean, I, I, I think also like the sort of obviously it is a very um, basic point, but if you consider the differences between what Manchester United aspire to be and what Newcastle are and what Sean Longstaff's role was within the last six months of Newcastle's season, which is a very much a Rafael Benitez team where you've got a single centre forward and then you've got two pretty thick banks behind that. And there is little ambition beyond you know, occasional counter-attacking bursts, but mainly just defensive security. And so what Longstaff really is, he's a plug. And that suits his attributes. You know, we've talked about a a static player, a a physical player, a a player that can win the ball, a player that can distribute the ball quite well sideways and backwards and can just basically recycle it. Yeah. How does that fit into what Manchester United want to be? Mm. There is, there there are, there is, there's no synergy there. And it's kind of, it's a... um, it's that's where this sort of this this notion of an overarching strategy um, really aids transfer um, recruitment because if you a good way a, a good example of how this should work is actually Watford. So Watford um, at the moment, Javi Garcia. At any given time, Watford have a short list of players that could fill certain positions. So a manager goes to um, uh, his his sort of uh, his higher ups, essentially directors of football uh, owners, and says, "I need this." 
And then from that point, his role in that decision ends. You have a requirement and you're allowed, you, you know, you, 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 you request to fill it. And then sort of from that group of players that is existing, it's not a reactionary list. It is a list that, that, that sort of um, exists permanently. Then a player is acquired to fit the needs of the team. It is not a kind of, well, he's playing quite well. Let's go and get him for X amount of million. Because that is that is a, a classic example of how inefficiency results. Sean Longstaff's, um, May, Sean Longstaff may very well in three, four years' time prove to be an outstanding player. He may grow uh, at a faster rate than we, we ever anticipated. However, he has played, I think he started less than 10 Premier League games. How do you make a £50 million transfer decision based on that? You don't. You don't, exactly. <laughs> I think as well, in this instance, if, if I were occupying the director of footballer role at Man United and and... Solskjaer came to me and said, I need a defensive midfielder. I think one of the questions I would be asking is, okay, well, basically put, for example, what formation do you intend to use for the majority of next season? And why, given that you have McTominay, given that you have Pogba probably playing as a kind of eight, um, given that you have Fred, who I still think is a good player, Matic, who actually looked pretty decent against Inter, Mm -hmm. how do you see that midfield shaping up? What is any player, whoever that player is, going to bring to this midfield that you don't already have? How do you intend to use these different types of players in concert with one another? Okay, maybe it's a three-man midfield, in which case it's a bit different. But I think you're you're looking to have these sorts of conversations where, you know, your your manager is saying, I, I would like to do X or I, I want X player, you know, because that'll solve my problems or it'll alleviate some of the criticism of me in the press or it's whatever it is. You need somebody who is in a position of some authority to be able to push back against that and also alternatively to say, okay, that makes a lot of sense. You want a certain profile of player. Give me a couple of weeks because ideally this is a conversation that you have well before the transfer window even opens. I mean, look at how Borussia Dortmund did their business super quick. Um, I will then go off and with a team of analysts or whatever it is, I will find you better versions of that player. I will find, I will think about, and again, I think this is something that clubs need to do more. I mean, obviously there's a couple of clubs like a Real Madrid or something who don't need to behave in this way, but really clubs should be thinking about player profiles. They shouldn't be thinking about positions. They shouldn't be thinking about individuals. They should be thinking about a style of player that fits into a system and then working out the most sensible option to be that style of player or that profile of player? Well, there are, there are questions within that problem which a, a head coach is not equipped to answer. So I'd add in, what kind of person is this? How is this person going to cope with, first of all, playing for Manchester United, which is a very different prospect to playing for Newcastle? Yeah. How is the person going to, um, to assimilate into a group which contains some very, very famous players who yeah. have won World Cups, who, who, who will earn a lot of money and considerably more money than they are used to? So there are all these factors which need, all these questions which need to be answered by committee and by a committee of people that are qualified to answer them, not just a, what do I need? Because it, it is, I mean, Joe mentioned FIFA earlier and that's a really good example. It's like, there are still some clubs who have a fan's mentality towards the transfer market. It's like, a, right, what is his overall rating? And does he fit into this position on this kind of, um, this figurative pitch that I've got drawn on a blackboard somewhere? Can I just put a name in there? It's not that simple because any transfer is kind of a, um, a flip of the coin anyway. There is, I mean, it's very, very, it's very, very difficult to sort of to predict how successful something is going to be. So what you're left with really 
is kind of a risk assessment. Um, and who is making that risk assessment? Hopefully people that understand every aspect that goes into making a transfer successful. And that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, Wan-Bissaka, right, is, a, is an interesting example because Wan-Bissaka is a great right back. Yeah. He's the you know, strongest defensive right back, arguably, in Europe's top five leagues last yeah. season. I have no issue with him being signed. I have some issue with the money. But the kind of fullback, apparently, if they couldn't get Wan-Bissaka, was Max Ahrens of Norwich. Yeah. Where you're then looking at somebody who's effectively a right winger. He's a very, very different Who guy. happens to be listed on a team sheet this as a right back. This is the shortlist problem, that, isn't it? That's exactly the can, problem. Can, can we put this into context, though? Because firstly, we don't know that that's true. Okay, we, we must say that these are just rumours. So we, we don't know if Max Ahrens was the second one. Secondly... It was, it we, was widely enough reported It was widely for me sure, to it may be some true. credence. Okay. That is believable. It's quite instructive, Joe. Like that, that you kind of... It, Alex can say it and I can nod along and think, yeah, that, that sounds probably about right. That does, but, but look, take, it, take it to a second step, right? Yep. If that, even if that is true, right? We, we've done plenty of tactical tactics explain videos in the last couple of years that have talked about how you have one slightly more solid left back, a uh, uh, wing back and one... Uh, fullback I should say and one who's perhaps more adventurous and so we don't know for example if the second option on the right is to chase someone like Max Ahrens that maybe that changes the priorities on the left or that changes the priorities in 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 on the right wing, and I'm not. I'm not saying that Manchester United don't give off the yeah. give off the perception of being woefully inept when it comes to this sort of philosophical structured approach to transfers, but we we are. We're waging on them a little bit, aren't we? Well, mm, I hmm. yes, I no. because it looks like they're just about to buy Harry Maguire. Is that is that? I mean, let's move on to him because it's right, um, okay. lots of other people ask questions about Harry Maguire. Is that a bad transfer? It's a much much better transfer for sure. Yeah. I mean, Harry Maguire is a good defender. I would, yeah. I would say he would become their their best centre back by yes. some distance if he was to join. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, much of the criticism has been around the cost. But the, the cost, cost of, and also his uh, personally just his pace and his turning speed, I think is, I, I think you can ameliorate that to a degree if you can you can see him playing alongside Lindelof, and in fact I could see him and Lindelof with Lindelof on the the left side of that that defensive partnership becoming really quite good. Um, I don't have an issue with that. I have an issue with paying more for somebody than Liverpool paid for Virgil Van Dijk, who is clearly a better player. And that that's my main problem. I, I think cost is, a, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think, it, I mean, 80 million pounds is a lot of money for Harry Maguire. Um, the Virgil van Dijk context makes it seem... up to 90. Or maybe 90. Okay, but I, I see that as a symptom of football as a whole rather than a, I, I don't, I can't say with any authority that is a failing of Manchester United's. I mean, historically, yes, it seems like it, but these clubs are, are very wealthy now. What we're seeing, we saw it with Palace too, and we're seeing it not just with Wan-Bissaka, but Wilfred Zaha. They don't want to sell a player. They're not going to sell a player. And that's different to how it was 10 years ago. Like, you know, no longer can Arsenal say, well, we want this player. And then they can sort of uh, negotiate downwards from what Palace is asking prices. Palace want 80 to 100 million pounds and they're not going to sell him for any less. And you see that replicated. Leicester, obviously, a, a very, very wealthy club. Also, Leicester, an attractive proposition for a player. It's not like Harry Maguire thinks, well, either, I mean, it's still a little bit unlikely, but you could certainly make a case of saying that Leicester could potentially finish above Manchester United this year that's um, I would still back Man United but uh, it's not unreasonable and I think all these factors it's not just a oh Woodward can't negotiate properly you know get rid of him there's maybe a bit of that but I don't see that as being the single issue within that, that I, I would say as well and again 
you're right to say that we don't want to sound like we're dunking on United because, you know, not unfairly, I think our criticism has been reasonable. But I think if you're a Leicester player currently and you look at your manager being Brendan Rodgers, who has pedigree, who has experience, you're thinking about, particularly if you're Maguire, your international prospects. Mm -hmm. And then you look at what's happened in Manchester United over the past couple of seasons, where there's been periods of significant upheaval. There's been selection that has appeared really quite arbitrary at times. You're thinking, is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer going to last past October or November of this season? There's quite a few other centre-backs there. Yes, I'm a better player if I'm Harry Maguire than those other centre-backs. Uh, but does that mean I actually get to start all of the time? You know, I would who think knows? that Harry Maguire knows that he's going to start if he comes to Manchester. But I would Joe, I would expect I, that he would he would he would discuss. But you that don't role. know who comes in after, possibly yeah. after Solskjaer. Well, I'm not you talking don't. about things that are definitely going to happen. What I'm thinking about is that if you're a professional footballer who has a reasonably short career and Maguire is entering the peak of that career. He is going to have as a question mark, and if his agent is a responsible individual, they will have it as a question mark too. Do I stay somewhere where I'm appreciated, I have a central role, and I'm under a manager who is good, and I'm at a club who is making intelligent, progressive moves in the transfer market? Or do I go to a club that, since Sir Alex Ferguson left, has been kind of a basket case? That's that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, though, don't you think? Because... What are his other options at the moment? It sounds a little bit, and if the rumours are to be believed, it sounds like Manchester City aren't prepared to part with the amount of money it's going to cost to get him. So what we're really looking at is is potentially a binary choice between staying at Leicester, who I absolutely agree are a progressive club with a progressive manager and they are an exciting team to be part of. And they, they could well finish above Manchester United next season or the season afterwards. They absolutely could. But... If it's a binary choice between that and Manchester United, where not only is it Manchester United, we can't leave out the significance in the, in the history of that and the fact that everyone who knows what football is around the world knows the name of that club. But also he's going to earn significantly more money. That You said it yourself, he has a short career. Uh, uh, Why yeah. would anyone negate their, their, their potential of earning enough to extend their ability to retire for longer and more luxury? I, I don't disagree with that. All I would say is that and again, this is supposition to a degree that the name of Manchester United in that regard probably now doesn't carry as much weight among professional footballers sure. as it does among everybody else. No, of course, of course. but I, I, I think maybe more weight than Leicester. And that is no disrespect to Leicester City. I don't think it's unreasonable in terms, to in say In terms that. of moving to a club, yes. Yeah. But if you're already at Leicester, maybe not. I don't, I don't know. Like, even, I'm not the, even the earning potential on its own, to, though. But, well, but Joe, don't, I mean, I, I, I agree. Like, the, the temptation with United is now not solely money-based, and that remains hugely important. Of course it does. But I think for Harry Maguire, Harry Maguire needs to look at the next three years of his career. So Leicester have taken him to a World Cup semi-final. Leicester, if he remains at Leicester now, he is probably England's starting centre-back in the European Championships in 2020, possibly 2022 World Cup. Now, what happens if you look back at sort of players that have made the decision in the past? So I'd include Lindelof in that, Eric Bailly. Um, there are different factors which have, have devalued them, but they are devalued players. Like Lindelof, perfectly serviceable centre-half, has become, became a standing joke for a long time. Um, and I think you do have to consider what your place in, in what, what, how you're going to be perceived should things at Manchester United not be as stable as you might hope they would be. 
you can earn a decent wage, but then where are you going to be in two years' time? What is your earning capacity going to be like then? Is Harry Maguire, you, you mentioned Man City. Now, man, um, they may not be willing to pay, you know, meet the asking price this summer. But what if he stays for another year? What if he has another really good year and then an excellent European championship? Are his options just Manchester United then or are his options Manchester United it sounds a little bit silly, but Real Madrid, Bayern Munich. I, I, I don't, I don't know that's going to be the case. I don't even expect it to be. But that's how you have to think, and that's how a good agent would think. Is that you know that binary choice? That is, I don't want a binary choice, my player. I would rather wait another year and then earn slightly more and have a broader choice and a better choice. Mm-hmm. You know, a Juventus, Bayern Munich. You know, these kind of clubs. Because, and also, you know, even Manchester United, if in a year's time, Manchester United's position is far healthier, they've got the director of football, Solskjaer has lasted the year and done well, maybe they're in the Champions League, we don't know. And so I, I think I would rather in his position where he does have quite a lot to lose, I think I'd rather defer the situation, uh, uh, defer yeah. the decision, I, I think. I mean, and it's not a deal done, right? I mean, that could still happen. I don't know. I mean, um, by all accounts, there was some agreement on Sunday, but... Uh, about a week ago, all the usual uh, transfer reporters were saying exactly the same thing, and he was having his medical. So either he's mm. had a week long medical, or that was not true. Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, I think I think he'd be a really good signing. Yeah, for I agree. I think I, he, I, you know I, I he think would improve them. He would he improve, improve them, them yeah. definitely. He he would also improve them in areas where they need improvement. They need improvement at centre back, but also they need improvement in terms of physicality and in terms of leadership and, and personality. Good I think footballer he, too. Yeah, he's, he's a better he's, footballer. He's I know a, he doesn't look like he's it, a good but he's passer. a good footballer. My, my sole caveat yeah. with him, which is why I think Man City is probably not the move, mm-hmm. is he's he's not quick enough and he's not dynamic enough, but for them. Um, but, I, you know, he's, this is clearly, this is not a dumb transfer. And, and it's not, you know, we, I don't want to give the impression that everything I think about Man United as pejorative and, and that they're, think, oh, oh, they're the, awful people. The reason I interject like is because I think, I think we have to remember as TIFO that we must talk about what, what has actually happened as opposed to basing, you know. So there, there are plenty of historical reasons from transfer windows past to believe and accept that Manchester United are far from the best when going into transfer windows like this and spend a lot of money which could be yeah. called unnecessary. They don't have a structured system to approach these things. They still don't have a director of football, which is something they've been talking about for a year or so. As we've discussed, the names that have been flying around in contention with that. You know, Rio Ferdinand has, has discussed this openly as well, so we can assume that he has at least been part of a discussion around it, right? It's It's not good. However... This is a new transfer window. There's a new coach. It's, it's Oli going to so It is Oli's first um, transfer window, isn't it? We don't know what changes have been made. The only thing I stress is that we assess the business based on the business, which well, at the moment is Aaron Wambasaka and Dan James and Daniel, Daniel James, James from yeah. Swansea. I, I think there's another caveat here. Like United, were in a unique situation. Like when Ferguson left. There are very, very few clubs in, in world football who have to encounter that kind of problem. Yeah. Like you don't get dynastic managers leaving clubs at the top of the game like that. You don't have um, clubs that are sort of entwined with such kind of prolific commercial uh, partnerships like United were. It, it's, there is no roadmap here. You don't, there isn't an example to follow. And so, you know, whilst frustrating, a lot of their failures are entirely predictable and in some cases forgivable too. I mean, one of the major reasons that you would have a sporting director is precisely because you don't have a Ferguson dynasty. Yeah. And if you've had a Ferguson dynasty for such a long time, then you're kind of, you're, you're so far from thinking in that way because you haven't had to. And I think 
the emotional hiatus of Ferguson leaving United and Gill as well. You're absolutely right about that. I, I think it would be extraordinarily difficult to understand just how impactive that was on the club mm. and how much it kind of almost threw it into a state of... A trauma. Yeah, it was genuinely a trauma. Um, and and the, the, the paralysis that can come from that trauma, it takes a very brave person to say that, that this uh, transition from a genuine era into how basically everyone else does it Wobbly legs. is our opportunity to overthrow the system, bring in someone that we've never had before and never needed to have before. And that, that would have seemed, I think, to a degree, particularly given the circumstances, the way that Ferguson left, it would have seemed an implicit criticism of the tail end of that regime, which, of course, everybody wanted to avoid. Mm. So it makes sense. Right, we've got 12 minutes before Seb has to go, and oh, we have three okay. things to discuss. So very Shoot, quickly, uh, Lukaku, who appears to be uh, wanting to leave, at least if Inter can meet a uh, transfer fee. Um, we've, also, we've, we've also got Icardi written down to Yeah, discuss. so uh, quite a few people have, again, this is posited and mooted and mm. rumoured rather than anything else, but that Icardi would be part of some sort of putative deal. Inter very much want to get rid of Icardi. Conte has stated yeah. in press conferences that Icardi has no future there. They've got Lotaro Martinez. They don't need Icardi anyway. So we, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Yeah. Oh, run a mile from him. Okay, so run a mile from Icardi. Yeah. Lukaku, yeah. losing Lukaku. I mean, it seems like the club are happy to do it for the if right amount of money. If somebody wants to pay 60 or 70 million uh, for Lukaku, I'd bite their hand off. I think, I think Lukaku is a good player, but he's not going to be good enough to take Manchester United to where they want to go. Like yeah. he's, I'm not sure he's either... I think he's got a kind of um, a, a mentality which isn't actually suited to playing for a club at Man United where the criticism can be so severe. And that's borne out in the kind of the long goal of spells he has and the very visible decline in his confidence. Right. And uh, yeah, a good player, you know, potentially Champions League player, fine, but not, I mean, you're not going to win a title with Romelu Lukaku. Okay. Uh, the other thing we wanted to talk about was the youth prospects, or various youth prospects, mm. um, and whether or not Solskjaer might be able to rely on some of these players. He's he's talked a big game about bringing many of them into... I mean, Mason Greenwood is the one I heard him talking about recently. Uh, Chong, I think he talked about towards the end of last season, both of whom he appears to be publicly promising starts to, or perhaps at the very least minutes in the Premier League season. It's a fan's wet dream, but how realistic is it, Alex? They both came on after... 60-odd minutes in the recent friendly against Inter. Mm-hmm. Um, Inter were very physical in that game. They really tried to give him... Skriniar was kicking people left, right and centre. Um, Greenwood looks like a genuine prospect. Um, really nice movement. Um, good, incisive running. Uh, works hard, pressing. Um, Chong did as well, to be fair. Chong, I'm less... And Seb and I were talking about this beforehand. I'm, I'm, he was used on the left wing uh, in this friendly... I'm not entirely convinced that that's where he'll end up. Um, there seem to be some good attributes to him. He's quite a dynamic runner. He's got some nice tricks, nice in, passes. In the game of FIFA, he is listed as a right wing. Right. Um, <laughs> I would see him probably as ultimately an eight. Okay. Yeah, uh, a sort of progressive central midfielder who gets forwards. Um, I think, yeah, I think... I, Certainly, they both have promise. I think it would make sense, particularly with Greenwood, to start introducing him in Premier League games, um, coming on as a substitute. I think he adds a real dynamism there. Do United um, need, if, if Lukaku le- leaves, for example, and United were left with 
uh, Rashford and Greenwood who could play in that central striker role. And Martial. And Martial. Is, is that enough? I don't, I don't know. I mean, one of the things with Greenwood is, I mean, he's everything Alex said. He, he's, a, he's a very artistic player. He's very creative. He's not selfish at all. Like if you go back and look at sort of his time in the under-18s, you see the kind of the, the he, he's fond of switching the play. He's got a 40, 50-yard pass. Remember that the old pass Rooney used to play from one side of the pitch to the other? He's got that in his locker. Um, he will happily drop down towards the halfway line to influence the play. Um, so it's going to depend on what Solskjaer wants from his nine. Um, Which I, appear, from, from games last season would appear that that sort of play, I mean, Jesse Lingard played there as yeah. a, in a sort of false nine role a while. Yeah, for a while. exactly. So it's promising. I mean, I, I'm i always a little bit hesitant because you can look at a player and say he's got the ability. I mean, he's, he's kind of two-footed as well. He's a really good finisher. He sees runs ahead of him really nicely. A lot of this is based on his work with the youth teams. So I, we, we, Alex Guy, again, we're talking about this. You don't ever really know how that's going to translate. Um, but the ability is there. So the only question remains, are you willing to give a player like this 10 games of potentially patchy appearances to grow into an app, a, a full-time role with the first mm. team? It's not, you can't just chuck someone in and say, right, you've got 90 minutes, you, you either play well or you're back to the bench for good. You've got to give someone a chance over a series of months. Um, I think he's potentially a more talented player than Rashford. Um, whether well, the thing with Rashford that was so interesting was Rashford just adjusted so easily to Premier League life. Um, and there's something about his personality which thrived on the, the challenge. I don't know the same. I, I don't know whether the same is true of Mason Greenwood. Yeah, okay. um, I'm not saying he doesn't. I just don't know. I, did, did, did something you know about the way um, that I'm two footed as well? But they're both as shit as each other, those feet. That's not the same thing at all. <laughs> Thanks for stealing my jokes, Ev. That was hilarious. Yeah, it would have been um, funnier if, if I delivered it. Okay, yeah. okay. The, um, <laughs> you do have a good timing, it's true. Yeah. Thank you. Pre-season friendlies are often a really difficult way of gauging stuff. Yeah. But given the way that Inter played against them, and given the way that particularly Greenwood was spending quite a lot of time running at Skriniar, who seemed intent on kicking the shit out of everybody... There was something in the way that he handled that yeah. and he didn't stop running. He didn't stop moving and looking to receive the ball. He didn't seem to care that people were trying to kick lumps out of him. And, and it's, it's a very minor thing and it's, it's 20 minutes oh, I of think football. It's a, I think it's a major thing. But yeah. I think it goes some way to, to the sorts of things that Seb's talking about. Trying to gauge, gauging a player's mentality is the hardest thing um, because it can change you know, for so many different reasons in so many different ways so quickly. Um, but he just looks to have something. And Chong, to be fair, looked to have that as well. Um, they both carry themselves in a really encouraging way. Yeah. They both carry themselves as if they believe they are of a certain ability and they have this kind of healthy superiority on the pitch, they which want, I really like. They want to have the ball yeah. and they want to give to get the opportunity to try and do stuff. A quick word on... Um Angel, Angel, Gomez. Size is going to be the issue. Yeah, he's a bit, he's he's quite pretty, but I don't think he's... Is we? Sorry? Is he we? Yeah, he's echo. It's it's um, all the ability in the world, but this has been the same, this has been the conversation with him for years now. Right. Um, not not dissimilar to Pereira in some ways. Yeah. Chung's six foot. Which I, I, I feel more comfortable as a result of that. Yeah. Like the size of, of Chong, Greenwood isn't small. Uh, Gomez... It just—I don't know whether I'm—I'm—I'm—whether I'm, I'm a football dinosaur as a result of this, but it's just a bit of a red flag. He's a luxury player. Yeah, maybe that may not be a bad thing, but I don't think it's what United need currently. I think I want to see a little bit more of him in senior football. Like I want to see him. I want—I want him to get a loan. I want to see 
how he deals with being punted around the championship pitch for, for a few months. And then, you know, there's no reason to believe just because his size, he can't make it. There's a, you know, a lot of, you know, he did, of, he did a pretty assist. good example of that, isn't there? Yeah. He assisted Phil Jones for a headed goal <laughs> off a corner against Leeds. Phil Jones scored a header. I know. Wow. Yeah. Phil Jones and Ashley Young looked so bad against Inter. Okay. So bad. <laughs> uh, does, uh, does Luke Shaw need a backup at left back? Uh, yes, and they should probably buy Patrick Van Arnholt from Palace, not that Palace would sell him. I've okay. got a, uh, an even more obscure uh, prospect. Um, That's not obscure. Tyrell Malasia, uh, Feyenoord 19. What, sorry, what's his name? Tyrell Malasia. Okay. Uh, sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. No, no, no. I, just, um, I could, couldn't hear. 19-year-old uh, Dutch and under-21 international. Um, really came into the Feyenoord team uh, in the second half of last season. Uh, like a very optimistic player. Uh, not the very quickest. Um, uh, I've got a few doubts about his ball striking technique but it's the optimism I want someone that's quite similar to Luke Shaw in the way that he plays um, he's a pretty good defender too I see him as someone that could come in potentially and um, be a deputy without causing an issue Luke Shaw is your starting fullback great, terrific, that's how it's meant to be I see him as someone that has time on his side that can spend three or four years learning that can pick up the slack, but also play in a fairly similar way. He wants to get forward. He'll score goals. Uh, very interesting player. Okay. We've got uh, three minutes left. Will someone tell me something about Fernandez Because he is the other player who is being uh, strongly linked with Manchester United, albeit in rumour only. Um, I don't think he's what they need. Yeah, I don't like it. I mean, he's, he's a good player, obviously. He's with the slight caveat that... that you know, players transitioning from the Portuguese league directly can be astonishingly great or can kind of fizzle out a little bit. I quite like them when they go somewhere else first as a stepping stone, uh, like Bernardo Silva to, um, to Liga. Um, but it seems like a significant outlay for the sort of person who wouldn't necessarily, who would sort of fall somewhere in between where you'd want to play a striker and the sort of places that you'd want Paul Pogba running into. Mm. Um, I'm I'm not convinced, and I think they've got more pressing concerns. You don't like it, Seb? Too much money. Uh, he's I, a good I, I, player, though. He's a good player, but I, I don't feel like I know enough about him. I don't feel like I know whether he would suit English football. I don't. I, I agree with Alex. I don't think he's what United need. Um, but I I don't feel that um there's enough evidence to warrant the kind of fee that it would take to sign him. Uh, and finally, uh, with our last minute. I think the answer to this one is fairly straightforward, but uh, Peachy Boy 420 mm. asks, why isn't Toby Alderweireld being considered instead of alongside, uh, instead of stroke alongside Harry Maguire, given his release clause, presumably his age? His age and his nationality. Uh, also, that release clause ends on the 26th of July. Um, so if that hasn't Which is in four now, days' time. It, you know, and also uh, Spurs are in Asia uh, with Alderweireld as well. So... Um, if it hasn't happened now, it's not going to. Sorry about the noise. <laughs> I don't know what's happening out there. Um, okay, well, listen, thank you so much for, uh, for listening, everyone. And uh, Seb and Alex, thank you for participating today. I, I mean, that's quite a loud noise, isn't it? <laughs> it's bonkers. It's quite, it's someone's quite annoying. Someone's bashing yeah. something. I don't know what's happening. Anyway, we'll, 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 we'll be done soon. Um, but uh, it's really... Really threw me off my track there. Oh, I'm saying goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. Hope we answered all of your questions. Uh, we'll be back next week with something else, which you know will resemble this in some way, but won't be the same. And uh, have a lovely week. It's the planning that is really behind the success, <laughs> it isn't really it? Is, it's isn't it? It's so professional. Um, au revoir. <laughs> <laughs>